Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, or, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Art. Welcome to First Reform this morning. For, and we have a lot of ground to cover in these few short verses. Uh, verses which I'm certain that you've heard many times before. If you've even been to church for more than three months, uh, parts of these have at least come up. Uh, maybe they've been handled well, maybe they've been handled poorly. Uh, the intention today is to handle these verses well, handle them in accordance with what we find in the first letter of John. Uh, the first epistle of John, that letter to believers, that letter that is uh, starts out uh, with the concerning the word of life. That letter which uh, gives us the image of dark and light. Uh, that letter that points to the lightness of God, that He is the uncreated light. He is uh, the, the one who has created light itself. Letters of instruction that are given here, a letter of instruction given here to these believers. I would hope that today that not only do we see in these passages that same idea of dark and light, but we also see that there is a difference between professing your faith and actually being obedient to your faith. Again, that's professing faith and actually being obedient to faith. A little aside with that is that many can profess their faith. Many can sign documents that say they believe, but do they truly believe? So John comes to this uh, this particular passage uh, off of the message from last week that John Weathersby gave. He comes into this about this do not loving the world or uh, this imperative that is thrown there. Don't do this thing. Or when you would see it, uh, actually in the Greek language, it just says not love the world. It's a forceful not love the world nor the things in the world. Don't be involved with this thing. Don't show your affections to these things. Don't have your desires bent towards the world. But there's a problem if we look at that and we don't consider some other things that John himself has said. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And here, that same John, the same apostle, is, is saying, don't love the world. Yet back there he said, God loved the world. So we have to come to, uh, we have to uh, figure out what John's talking about there. And I would propose to you that this is, uh, the way to get there is to talk again about a little bit of John's usage of light and dark. We remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and there is no darkness in Him at all. And we skip down to chapter 2, verse 6, and it says, it says, The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Walk in the same manner that he walked, and then look at, uh, second, uh, the second chapter, verse 9 through 11, it says, 
The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So up until we get to this part, John is talking about dark and light. To walk in the light is to walk with the Lord. To walk in the dark is to walk away from the Lord or not be walking with the Lord. To walk in the pattern of the evil one. And so when we get to 15, we get to verse 15 we're at, where, where we're at. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. John is using what we would refer to as his third usage of the word world when we come to that. John typically uses the term world or cosmos or cosmos as you'll see it in the Greek. He typically uses it either A or one to refer to as the created world, two to refer to it as humankind, or three to refer to it as the evil system controlled by the devil, by Satan himself the prince of the air, Ephesians 2.2. It is this third case where he's using it. And we should be able to see that because he's been talking in contrast of dark and light up until this point in time. God loves that which he has created. He said it was good. To a certain degree with that creation, because man is created in his image, there is a love, uh, a, a grace fullness that goes towards that which he created in his own image. But here, when he speaks of do not love the world nor the things in the world, he is specifically speaking to that evilness that is in the world. Those things that are anti-God. Those things that are anti-Christ is what he's talking about here. Those things that are anti what he has set up. Those things that are anti-family. Those things that are anti-life. All those things would be anti-God, anti-Christ. That is the things he's talking about. Those things that have set themselves up as fortresses against those things that God desires. One need only look at, uh, even in our modern world today, uh, is that is we can use the example of how anti-family we are here in the United States. How we are focused on the individual. About the individual's happiness. And I know this is a little aside, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of the world system that is anti-God. We see how invested God is into the family way back in the beginning. It starts with a family. A broken family, but it starts with a family. We see how provision is made for the widows that they would be taken care of in the family. We have the whole book of Ruth that is about a family. We have references throughout the Scripture. We have references of our Lord and Savior referring to us as sons and daughters. We have our Heavenly Father. We have all these references to family Yet we have world systems that are all about the individual and against the family. That children are bothersome, that elderly parents deserve to be stuck into homes and not considered, and so forth and so on. That would be an example of those evil systems of the world. Also, those examples of those evil things of the world that John is speaking against would be jealousy, rage, uh, 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 the, the love of money that we speak about, greed. All these sorts of things are anti-God. There is a jealous love that God shows. A jealous love for His Son. A jealous love for those that are found in Him. A jealous love for, the, uh, for Israel as saved by Him. There is that jealousy that God is able to show, not in a manner that we do. We tend to do the jealousy in, in covetous ways, which John will speak about soon. But those things that are, are not reflective of God. That's why I put that, propo that proposal in the beginning. 
you know, profession means nothing without obedience. If you profess to, and John would say this, if you profess to love the Lord, but nothing in your life looks like anything that the Lord Himself sees as valuable, then maybe there's a disconnect. Do not love the world and the things that are in the world. He says, because if anyone loves the world, and that word for love there would be an affectionate love for the world, a desirous love for those things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That if you desire those things of the world, those things that he will go into more detail in verse 16 when we get there, if you desire those things, if, you, if your affections are set for those things, if you affirm those things, then there is no evidence that the love of the Father is in you. That there's no evidence that it is clear by your affections, or we could say this, your affections would prove what your belief is. Your affections would show where your allegiance is. Your affections would show what your true heartfelt beliefs are. And if your affections are bent towards those things of the world, to those things that are anti-God, then the love of the Father is not in you. Now this, it, the way it's worded, this is not reflective of the active love of the Father in you. This is the uh, reflection of, the, of your heart. The reflection of you. Are you showing that love? Or where is your love being shown to? Because those dark things of the world can't dwell with the light things of God. And those that love the world, well, you get entangled in those things, right? You get wrapped up in those sorts of things. You, they, become, uh, they become your life. And guess what? It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you anything to be aligned with the world. It doesn't cost you anything to affirm abortion. It doesn't cost you to anything to affirm uh, that a person can decide whatever gender they want to be. It doesn't cost you anything to affirm such things like that. In fact, more than likely, you will be rewarded or at least found to be acceptable because you affirm things like that. Those are the things of the world. Those are the things that are anti-God. When God has set forth, this is what marriage looks like. This is what a man and a woman look like. Things that used to be affirmed throughout the world. Those are anti-world, but pro-God. Easy to affirm the things of the world. You will be rewarded in the world if you are a greedy person. You will be rewarded in the world if you promote yourself. You will be fully accepted if you talk about yourself all the time because that's what we are told is important. Uh, you will be looked at as a captain of industry if you, uh, if you ground, ground, grind people under your heels to get ahead. Look at how successful that man is. Look at how successful that woman is by doing that. Yes, they've left carcasses and bodies all behind them, but look how successful they've done. The world rewards that. There's no cost to you. It's very appealing. John knows it's very appealing. In this period of time, it'd be very, very appealing to recant what you believe. Because I don't have to face, uh, I wouldn't have to face perhaps the, the, the wild dogs in the Colosseums or the animals or things like that. I wouldn't have to be sewn into a bag with a wild dog and thrown into the River Tiberius where, you drown, where you're simultaneously being, being mauled by an animal and drowning. I don't have to worry if I recant this 
silly Christianity. I don't have to worry about being burned as a garden party, hey, burned and it burned alive as a as a candle in Nero's garden party. You know, John knows that. He knows that these temporal things of the world are those things that draw us in. The things that we can touch, see, and feel. The nice car, the nice house, the big job with the big salary. The things that can provide for my temporal needs right now. And those things look eternal. The sun always rises. It's going to come up tomorrow. I mean, I'm counting on it, but it might not. You know, we tend to look at the world, and John knows this, that we tend to look at the things around us as everlasting. I might have mentioned it before in, in, in the book, the uh, brothers Karamarazov, uh, they make the mention about the person going, the, the person even going to the gallows to be hung. The prisoner going to the gallows to be hung for their crime is like this too. They would put them on a cart in the ancient Russian city from the prison to where they would be hung in the town square or so. And he said, you would watch this person that is going to be killed, to be murdered, to be, to be hung by the neck until dead. And what would happen, invariably, the person would be sitting in their cart, not downtrodden, but they would almost even be smiling. Because as they went on the cart, there was always another turn. And the gallows weren't there. And another turn, and the gallows weren't there. Another turn, the gallows weren't there. Because it always looked the same. That there was never an end to it. Until the moment they made the last turn and death was looming in front of them. And then they were faced with the choices they made. I would argue that John himself is saying that you ought to face the choices that you've made now. If you're choosing to be that part of the world, to affirm those things of the world that are anti-Christ, that are anti-God, then you are on a poor pathway. There is no love of the Father. You are not demonstrating the love of your Father. And don't forget, he's talking to believers here. Be wary of this thing. Because if you start seeking after those things, you're going to push out any affection you have for, the God, for God the Father himself. You're going to find yourself alone. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And we are going to cover some well-trodden ground. There are verses we've heard many times before. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter six. Did I say twelve? Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-four. Matthew six twenty-four. Jesus Himself, right after the Beatitudes. Excuse me. He says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other." You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God in your anger towards another believer. You cannot serve God in your hatred of the person who sits in the cubicle next to you at work. You can't serve God and support abortion, for example. God is a jealous God for us. And God is jealous for those who claim that they believe in the Son. Because your profession means nothing without the obedience to go with it. Words mean nothing without the actions that go with it. So Jesus himself is saying there, you can't serve these both. You can't walk the line in two worlds. Unfortunately, there's many church leaders today that try to walk that line. Between loving the world and loving God, and in turn, what they are is cowards. They won't stand on the word of God and what God says. They try to bridge that line and say, well, God didn't really say that. It's pretty clear what God says. They're pretty clear, clear what God values. Look at James chapter 4, verse 4. James 4, 4. You adulteresses, 
if we were just to stop there with that word, that would be the idea of, of, of married to one and being with another one. Being bound to one, but binding yourself to another one. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Again, we're not talking about the created world of God. We're talking about the, the, the controlled evil systems that are in the world that are controlled by the devil. Those things that are anti-God. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Be wary of those friendships you have with the world. Examine them at all times. Now hear me clearly. You can have a big house. You can have a car. You can have a job. You can enjoy your hobbies. But they need to be done in the right manner. They can't become that idol of your life. They can't become the thing that revolves, everything in your life revolves around them. And I'm going to tell you why that is. I've seen people who have tried to be, live that monk-type uh, monk lifestyle. Right? We are uniquely created to live on this planet. I can tell you that because I know to live off this planet, you have to take every life support system you know with you to go. I can literally stand here and live. I don't need to take anything with me. I can't live at the bottom of the ocean either. I'm uniquely, I'm uniquely designed to live standing on this earth. We are uniquely made with hands and eyes to see things and touch things and understand things and, and whatnot. God has given us these things to enjoy in right relationship. Not in idolatrous relationships. Those things that they become, become, become the gods of our life. God hates love that is directed to the things that He hates. John 15 the Gospel of John 15. John 15, uh, flip to verse 18. For example, we're very close to uh, we're very close to Jesus going to the cross, his way to the cross. He says in verse 18, Jesus says. Speaking to the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. I mean, there's the message from First John's, uh, uh, the First John epistle. The world loves its own. The world loves those things that the world loves. The world loves the people that loves the things that are important to the world. The, lo the, the world loves self-centeredness, greediness, hatred. It loves all those things. The world doesn't love God or the things of God. But he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is no great, not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So we can ask the question, are you in the world or of the world? Believers are called to be in the world, to be that light in dark places in the world. If you were to poll some friends, would they know that you're a believer? Would they know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? It's easy to check. If you look at the things that you do, does the world approve of it? Or does God approve of it? It's easy to see what God approves of. We have a whole book that says what God approves of in right relationship. So profession means nothing without obedience. Verse 16, 
John Nell takes us, he has he put this bold statement up there. Don't love the world or the things that love the world. Now I'm going to, John says, now I'm going to give you, a, I'm, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to put some teeth on this message. I'm going to, going to show you some areas. It's not going to be an exhaustive list. It's not going to be, I'm going to list this, 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 and this. It's not going to look like uh, what Paul would say in uh, Galatians 5, the things of the world, he gives those lists. And then the things of the Spirit, that list there, I encourage you to look at that. We may or may not get there. But he puts some teeth on this. He talks in broad terms. He will say, he says here, because, don't love the world or the things of the world, because all that is in the world, these evil systems that are in the world, now he's, he's vectoring in, he's, he's becoming laser-like focused on some things. He's going to say the lust or desire of the flesh. And we'll stop there. The lust or the desire of the flesh. He's talking here about that innate sinfulness that is in us. That has been in us since the fall. That innate sinfulness that uh, became part of our makeup when Adam and Eve fell. That, that sinful desires that well up even on our best days. Those things that come up in our minds that if we don't repent about them can be very dangerous, but those things that even when you're studying the Bible, you can all, you can think about things or, or dislikes you have of people or things that are going on that are, you know, ungodly like thoughts that you think of. It was those things that were revealed in the fall at the garden is that lust of the flesh, that desire. And we see that uh, uh, David would say it in Psalm 51.5. He would say, you know, born into iniquity. I was born into it. It is part of me. When John speaks here of the lust of the flesh, it isn't of the sexual nature of the lust of the flesh. He's going to deal with that in a moment. But he's, te- uh, he's speaking of is that idea of those things that are natural to us to be turned against God. That natural hardness of heart that we have that's turned against God. Turn with me. Uh, I don't know if it's in your list. In the, there's, there's a number of scriptures here. Uh, a lot of them made it into uh, the bulletin, but I chose not to put all of them in there. Just because you could look at it and say, why don't we just read the whole Bible? Uh, is that what is the dangerous, <laughs> the dangerous part is. But you see this nature of this lust, this desire of the flesh. If we see the story of Cain, Genesis chapter 4. It's in my Bible on page 3, if that helps anyone. Genesis chapter 4. And if we, if we start at verse 3, and it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Verse 4, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now this is not the appropriate place for a discussion of the offerings that are here, but it leads to an issue with the issue of the flesh and the lust of the flesh and the desire of the flesh and the way the flesh can control us if we do not become masters of ourselves through the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And then in verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That Hebrew word for desire there means devouring. Because of our fallen nature, sin is always waiting for us to devour us, to, uh, to, to, to just consume us. The same word is used in Genesis chapter 3 
uh, verse 16, where it says about the woman, your desire will be for your husband. Again, not of the sexual nature, it's the desire of the flesh to be in control of someone else. The desire of the flesh to undo the right relationships that God has provided. The desire of the flesh and our sinful nature to go counter to what God says is right. To go counter to the way that God has set up this world. That's what he speaks of when he's talking about the, the, the lust and the desire of the flesh. Here. Again, John is, John is painting broad pictures. He, a, a broad idea. This lust of the flesh. This is it's big. It's giant. It's, it's everyone is affected by it. These are the things of the world, he would say. And if we look to the next portion, the in us, right? The, 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 as the, that innate monster of iniquity that's in all of us, right? And then what he says next, he says, for all that is in the world, all that is in part of that evil system of the world, the desire, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes will stop there. The eyes that allow those things into us, those eyes that if we are not, we're told to control our eyes, control where our eyes wander to, where they go to, if we don't control those eyes, we can see and view things that we shouldn't be part of. The obvious thing is of the sexual nature. Right? A friend of, a friend of mine from an old church we went to, I've mentioned before in small groups, you know, he, he said he was a, he was a pilot. In the, in the Navy. And a great, uh, just a phenomenal Christian man. You know, he was speaking from, when I, when I knew him, he had been, he was in the Navy for 30 years as a pilot and he had been retired for 10. Was a Christian the entire time he was in, 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 in the service. Uh, and he said to me, he related just one time, we were talking to a small group and he, he, he related this story and it was just so poignant. He said, I was walking through the ready room for the pilots on the aircraft carrier I was stationed on. And there was a bunch of pornographic magazines that were sitting on a table in there. And he said, I was just walking through and I just picked one up and I was just glancing through it. Right? And he said, my commanding officer was walking through the same time. And he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, uh, just bored, just looking. He said, I'm going to tell you right now, once those images get in your head, they never get out. Guard your eyes. And he's right. But that guarding of those eyes goes a lot further. I've seen it happen to people. They have success in their life, right? And they're good people. Good is, and I don't, I don't want to belabor the term of good, what is good and no one's good. Not, but I mean, they're, they're decent Christ-following people. And they have some uh, material success in their life, not because they, uh, they haven't stomped on anybody, but they've just been rewarded in their life. And they move into a big neighborhood. Right? They had the... They drove around in the Chevy or the Ford. Or the Dodge. <laughs> but they move into the big neighborhood the big house that will house all their children that they have. And they look around and you got the lawn service. You got the expensive cars. And next thing you know, because you're looking around, you're keeping your eyes focused on something else, you start keeping up with the Joneses. And they get into trouble. In a previous part of my career, I've been into many houses many giant houses to look at, to, to write estimates on and stuff like this. I've seen many giant houses, half million dollar houses, million dollar houses that have no furniture in them because they can't afford it. Because they look out and they see what other people have, the eyes guide them to what other people have and they say, I want that too. And I will do anything I can to get that thing. I will covet that. And what do we see when we see that? It's anti-God. God says Himself, do not covet. Do not look after these things. Uh, the, the, the idea would be, the, the thought is, is that everything that you have is provided by the Lord. 
whatever situation you're in at the moment has been set forth by God Himself, the only sovereign God over all of His creation. But when He says those eyes, those are those things that just inflame the insides of us. It is so joyful to see Christ followers who would look at the success of somebody else and say, that is awesome. I am so glad that that has happened for you. And I'm going to continue to pray for you. It is hard to have a lot of things and be a Christ follower. John knows that. There was rich believers too back here. Uh, wealth isn't a sin. The love of wealth over God is a sin. That desire that is created when our eyes wander to things and are allowed to linger on things and inflame the lust that's in our flesh about those things will push out the love of the Father very quickly. And if we allow them to grow and flourish, it is, uh, it is a bad situation. Proverbs 6.25 probably had, there's an Ecclesiastes reference too. I don't have it written down and I'm, I don't have the, uh, uh, the great recall that some of the members of our congregation have. Uh, for these verses, I would say, I, if I tried to recall the Ecclesiastes verse, we'd end up going through six or seven pages till I read it and found it. So we won't do that. But 625. Uh, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Yes, the eyes. David himself, right? On the top of his, on the top of his, his home on the top of a home that he'd probably been up to the top of a thousand times to look out upon the city of Jerusalem. And then he happens to see Bathsheba as she's bathing. And the eyes don't glance. They stay. And that sets forth a whole course of action. Because he wasn't in control of that thing. And John is warning them of this, that, that lust of the eyes to look upon things and, and let, the, let the, the heart and mind become inflamed by what you're seeing. Become desirous of what you're seeing. And then he goes, so it's the iniquity that's within us, then the eyes that wonder and look and see and desire that, that, that we allow to inflame those desires. And then it says, and I'll read from the beginning. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Probably one of the most difficult uh, sentences to get behind here. It's just because it's said in a way, boastful pride of life, what is that all about? It could say arrogance in your, in your, in your translation. It could also say pride of life in your translation. But what we'll see here as I try to pull it apart a little bit, is start from the interior, looking with the eyes that wander and, and gather onto things, and now the boastful pride of life. We could say it simply like this. Uh, my position. Where I'm at. Look at how good I am. Look at my collection of Bibles. I have more than you. I must know more about Christianity than you because I have a lot of Bibles. Look at where I live. Look at, my, look at the position that I've gotten myself to in life. Look at what I have. Wrong thinking and not realizing that all that you have is a gift of the Father. God has gifted that to you. the giftedness of what we own is from God. He has provided those things for us. This idea that pride of life, the boastful pride, is the, the pride and arrogance 
of the possessions that you have or the position that you're in. Not realizing that these things that you have have come from the Father. They are His blessing to you. Not realizing that God allows the rain to fall both on the righteous and the unrighteous themselves. And the sun too. Evil and good alike get the sun. And you can see how John has spoken in here with the internalness that we already have, part of us, that we need to control. And then to let our eyes just drift out there. I tell you what, as a Christ follower, you have no position in your life where you can just absentmindedly look at things. No position for it. It is a battle, a war at all times. A war, and you, you must... You, I can't stress this enough when we read these passages. You are in a war every single waking second of your life. The moment that you became a believer, you were on the front lines. And you were marked out for death by the evil one. By the devil. By Satan. You were marked as a prime target. And he will take every advantage you have to break every Christian relationship you have your marital relationships, he will try to destroy those at every opportunity he gets. He will try to divide a church at every opportunity he gets. He will tell you from your flesh that you are not good enough or, de- or that God has not saved you. It's just what happens. And if you are out there, be wary if you think you stand. Right? Be advised because you're right on the precipice of falling. But you must bring every thought, every movement of your eyes and where they go to, into control. We are to live a life of self-control. Because guess what? The, re- the world rewards people that are out of control. All I got to do is look at the news. Hey, did you see what so-and-so did? Or if I could date myself, you know, we, we remember when it was commonplace, you would read about certain rock stars destroying hotel rooms. And we think that was a great thing. Or think, oh, wow, that's great to be so out of control like that and I'm getting in trouble. You see, because the world rewards things like that. The world does not reward control. The world hates the things of God. God is a God not of chaos. He desires that we bring all of our lives under the auspices of what He, His obedience, right? Because profession without obedience is nothing. Empty words up in the air that mean nothing. John would be warning them and he says there, he says, because of these things, these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boast of pride of life, is not from the Father. But it's from the world. The world that is in control by Satan, who's seeking to devour and destroy you, that roaring lion that we'll get to in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. You know, because it's good, we'll start in six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Man, I can just stop there and just think about that for a second. Do we realize that when we read these verses, that these verses here, but the verse that we're reading in, in 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17, we are under the hand of God when we really read that. That is God's word to us. It isn't John's words that he felt like writing someday. This is the actual Word of God. And this is the hand of God that is upon us and instructing us. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be repentant. When we stumble and fall, and we will. We must be repentant. Verse 8. 
Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Now notice, when he says sober spirit and be on the alert, he doesn't say be on the alert between the hours of 2 and 4 every day. Or between 6 and 9 a.m. But the idea here is that always be on the alert. In your waking times, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Always, always roaring around. around. Always looking to divide you from the body of believers. Always looking to divide you from Christian relationships. Always looking to divide you from the Word of God. Always looking to divide you from your, your faith. Always looking to divide you from what you know about the Lord. Always seeking to sow doubt into your life. Always seeking to rob joy from your life. Always seeking, the devil is always seeking to put you in a place where you are comparing yourself with others. And nothing robs joy more than comparison. Nothing robs joy more than comparison. That roaring lion, the devil, is always seeking to destroy those relationships you have. Now, if we think about this for a second, think about Jesus' temptation in the desert. Think about where the devil himself brought his attacks upon Jesus. Came by turning these turn these stones into bread. Or I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Look at all the kingdoms. I'll give those to you. Look at the position you could be in. Make these rocks into bread. Satisfy your satisfy the desires of your, of your physical body. And how does Jesus respond? He goes back to the Word of God. He goes back to what God has provided. The only place for full sustenance that comes from God the Father Himself. Look at Romans 13.14. Turn to Romans 13.14. So because of the life that Jesus lived, because of the work that was done on the cross, because he took God's wrath upon himself, because he rose again, because those that confess Jesus as Lord and Savior are found in him, are covered by the blood of the Lamb, they are, uh, they are, their, their sins are, have, been, have been cast aside, have been washed away by what he has done. And then in verse 14 of Romans chapter 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. When the eyes start wondering, when the, when the flesh starts desiring, when we start boasting, we need to turn to Jesus. We need to pray that God will point those times out to us, that He will work in our hearts to bend us always towards Jesus, to catch ourselves when we start doing it, because no one is beyond it happening to them. But being found in Jesus the Lord, being found in a repentant life is what we're called to do, because... Profession means nothing without obedience. As we go in verse 17, he says there then, the world is passing away. This thing that you think looks eternal like it will last forever is passing away. And guess what? You are too. It might not feel like it to you right now, but you are passing away. You don't know when the bus is going to hit you or when the, when the cancer diagnosis is going to come or when the heart attack strikes you dead or when you lie down to sleep and never wake up. You don't know when that's going to happen. You're part of that, what's out there, but this whole system of the world that is out there, when we take it to that evilness that John was speaking of, there is no place for that in heaven. There is no place for that in the new heaven and the new earth. These unwanted lusts and desires are gone. It is passing away. 
this is the last run that the devil has. This is it. Whatever he's got here, whatever control he has here, this is all it. There's a burning lake of fire that will be his entire residence for eternity. Is what he has coming. Don't put your hope in these things of the world. Put your hope, as Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And put aside the lusts of the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The one who does the will of God lives forever. This is why profession without obedience means nothing, right? So we need profession with obedience. That obedience would be to do the will of God. So by grace we have faith than to do the will of God. These are the passages. You should write down if you have them there. We'll start out Mark 3.35. And then we're going to go into uh, cascade down through uh, some verses quickly. Mark 3.35, right? Jesus is, uh, is just taught about the strong man uh, in the household. Uh, It is a crowded house. Uh, His disciples are sitting around his feet. His mother and his brothers have come to take him away because they think he's crazy. And what does Jesus say there? Uh, They say in verse uh, 32, a crowd was sitting, Mark 3.32, a crowd was sitting around him. They said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, looking about at those who were sitting around him, those would have been the disciples, and he's doing this, he's looking at them saying, You better listen to the next words that I say, because this is super important. Of words that I say, these are going to be really important for you to hear. And he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, indicating those that are sitting with him right there, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. John himself has just said, the the one that does the will of God is there with God eternally. So what is the will of God? Verses to write down. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. These are not the only verses that talk about what I'm going to speak about here, but these are the ones that come up uh, at the top of my head. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Remember, on the concept of the will of God equals eternal life. Okay? 2, 3 through 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First in the will of God, be saved, know the truth. Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So be saved, be Spirit-filled. The will of God. Be saved, be Spirit-filled. 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, verses 3-7. through seven. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man's, man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but it is but in sanctification. But in sanctification. So the will of God be saved, be spirit filled, be sanctified. First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. First Peter two thirteen. Thirteen through fifteen. 
Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to the governors as sent by him for punishment or of evildoers and the praise of the ones who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Be saved, be spirit-filled, be sanctified, be submissive. Be submissive. Then Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So suffering. So God's will for the believer is that you would be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. Saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. This is the will of God. These are the identifying marks of those who believe. right? Those who profess in their obedience will show these things. right? Those are the things that the one who does the will of God lives forever. Not the one who professes that they believed in the Lord. Because many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not see you? Did we not hear you teach? Did we not see you on the street? And for those that were here, if you recall the message I preached out of Mark, that those, the, the Pharisees, in the trial of Jesus, they knew Jesus better than you do. And what I mean by that is, they could identify his hair color, his eye color, the way he walked, the way he talked, what he sounded like, the way he sat down, the way he stood up. They knew what kind of clothes he wore, what sandals he had on his feet. They knew Jesus, but they were not known by Jesus. And to be known by Jesus, you need to be in the will of the Father and to be obedient to what He calls. Because to say that you know the Father, but do things that are willingly against what God says is not of Him, is to be disobedient. Is to be found outside of God's will. We have whole societies that are set around being against God's will. And we think it's okay. Profession means nothing without obedience. To be in the will of God is to live forever. To be obedient to the will of God is to be found forever for an eternity. To be saved, to be spirit-filled, to be sanctified, to be submissive, to be suffering. That is what it means to be found in the will of God. That is what God approves of. That finds yourself in enmity with the world. So I'd encourage you to examine your lives today and tomorrow and every day and say to myself, what is in my life that is being disobedient to what God says? What am I doing in my life that is anti-God? That is anti-Christ, the Christ that died on the cross to cover your sins. Are you willingly piling on more sins in your lifestyle that Christ has paid for? We must examine ourselves. We must examine what we do. Because profession means nothing without obedience. Matthew, in my last verse, will be Matthew 7. I don't even have to look up, and I know Jim is smiling. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. And I would add there, that narrow gate is doing the will of God. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. And that wide gate, we, when we are examining ourselves, is what I'm doing approved of by the world? Is my life, is the things I'm doing in my life approved of by the world? Now I'm not talking about your job, because God approves of that. And then if it's approved of by the world, is it a thing that I'm doing that's approved of by God? Okay? 
So enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. This would be the idea that there is, the only way to enter through this gate is naked. And bow down to get through this gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Examine yourselves. Profession means nothing without obedience. Glorious and Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, the Word that instructs us, that guides us, that cuts our hearts. Oh, I pray that, 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 that there are other hearts that are cut today, not just my own. That there would be others that would be cut and that would be bleeding from this Word of Yours that, that brings into focus uh, what it means to follow You, what it means to go through the narrow gate, that what it means is to, to be to find ourselves uh, as an enemy of the world, but to be found in the joyous, glorious satisfaction found in Your will, God. Please continue to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You would.